Welcome everybody to the Crim Academy, where we are criminally academic. I am your host, Jose, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen. And today we're speaking with illegal earnings expert, Dr. Holly Nguyen. So Holly is an assistant professor of sociology, criminology, and public policy at Pennsylvania State University. Her research interests include rewards from crime, employment and crime, consequences of group crime, and criminological theory. She approaches her research through a crime-as-work framework, which views criminal behavior as not fundamentally different from conventional behaviors, and therefore it can be examined as such. Holly received her PhD in criminology and criminal justice from the University of Maryland, and Holly is also the recipient of the American Society of Criminology's 2020 Cavan Young Scholar Award. Holly, we are so thrilled to have you on the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for asking me to come on. This is going to be a really great experience. Thank you. Yeah, we get to learn a few new things today from Holly. And so just a general overview of what we're going to cover today. We're going to ask Holly a couple of general questions about her work and her framework of crime as work. Then we're going to go into her paper on the conceptualization of criminal capital. And then we got a couple of myths for Holly to discuss, either to bust or confirm. So with that being said, let's get to it. All right. So we're going to start with just a few general questions. So first off, Holly, could you describe to us what the crime as work framework is? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I'd like to think of the crime as work framework as sort of a departure from the idea of studying crime and work. So often, I mean, that's sort of a play on words, but, you know, I like to study the relationship between crime and work. And so, you know, under that sort of relationship, there's questions like, well, does work suppress crime, right? And if it does, how and why would it suppress crime? For whom might it work? For, and under what conditions? And those sorts of questions have big implications for offender reentry or you know adolescent intensive work, for example. So those those have really important implications. But the way I approach those types of questions is through the crime as work framework because I conceptualize work really broadly. So I see work as all activities encompassing legal, informal, so under the table, not exactly illegal, but not declared, or illicit activities as work. And so the crime and as work framework sort of helps me think of questions and ways to answer these, these sorts of relationships between crime and work. So... I think that the crime and as work is just, it's a way of approaching things. And I think in terms of where it stems from is I see it stemming from two main streams of literature. So economics and through a rich learning and cultural tradition. And I can talk about that more if you'd like. So I think that's sort of the general broad idea. Of, yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of what you started to talk about, I think fits in with kind of a follow-up question, which is whether or not this idea of crime as work 
is kind of its own standalone idea or if it's a component that is added to other theoretical perspectives. Right, yeah, no, it's definitely not a standalone concept or anything. It's more just like a, a lens of viewing things. And I think, so I mentioned the main traditions that I think form the foundation for me anyway are through economics and some ethnographies that explain sort of the way individuals engage in crime. And so, but one thing that the two traditions have in common is that they view crime and work or legal work as not mutually exclusive, right? And these two activities, what they represent is actually this continuum of income generating activities. So there's no real sort of hard delineation between viewing working and, and illegal work and illegal work. And so a good starting point is maybe to draw from what we know from such a rich, long history of legal work and the concepts used in legal work, legal wages, education and skills and acquisition of skills to really start understanding the illegal sphere and then start sort of drawing either parallels or dissimilarities between the two. So I think on like the economist side, you know, scholars like Becker and Ehrlich and Grager, they've used sort of the standard economic model as crime and work in the sense that both activities require time and effort to produce income, right? So, and the links between the crime and legal work involve basically trade-offs among crime and the returns to crime, in addition to considerations of punishment costs and opportunity costs and tastes and preferences regarding sort of for both types of work, legal and illegal. So I think for economics and the sort of contributions to my view is that the strength is that they provide really strong models to build from, to build expectations from, and then we can see how sort of these expectations or how we delineate from these expectations. But in terms of the ethnographers, I think there's also a really rich tradition, right? And what they bring is the idea that, you know, there's this in-depth process of developing sort of the tastes and preferences that the economists talk about and the opportunities to engage in, in, in either legal or illegal work. And so they, they really draw out and detail the enculturation and the development of skills, knowledge in terms of either working legally or illegally and the structural contexts that are so important in terms of, you know, decision-making and that the contexts and situations that really shift decision-making across individuals. So I think for me, the crime as work framework is definitely part of several traditions that I think on it, in totality, they actually really dovetail well together, sort of allow us to study this legal, illegal work continuum in a more holistic way. That's really cool. I hadn't thought of it as a continuum before you said that, but now that you say that, it completely makes sense to me that that's more how it would be viewed. Yeah. So 
we mentioned previously that one of your research interests also includes groups and crime. So how does co-offending play into legal earnings and how do co-offenders benefit from this? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think, you know, many crimes, especially in adolescence, as we know, are done in the company of others, right? So, so it's a definite natural question in terms of, well, then how does it work? And does it benefit monetarily or not? And I think one of the ways we can look at it is it's just like any sort of economic venture, right? <laughs> so I guess like from that crime as work framework, right? We think about it as engaging in crime as in some ways, right? Not all, but to other economic ventures. And so when there are more people involved, you get more ideas and perhaps the aim or goal is larger than say if you were to do it alone. So it's more coordination, but you know, so the aim is larger, but for each individual, the, the divvying up of the goals or sort of the takes from your venture will be smaller, perhaps, than if you were to do it alone. But then there are a lot of other things to sort of consider when working in groups as well, right? With like sort of other benefits in terms of psych benefits or intrinsic rewards or, you know, things that are associated with risks in groups. But I think what we know from the literature that does exist is that generally individuals working in groups, the, the totality of the earnings or the total take is larger, but individually after dividing things up, it's smaller than you if uh, loan offenders. So for example, Marcelli in 2006 and colleagues looked at a sample of incarcerated adults in Quebec, and they found that the ones who had criminal mentors earned more money than those who didn't. And Zach Rowan looked at the pathways to desistance study, but him and his colleagues found was that the probability of actually being able to translate your crime into money-earning ventures, because a lot of people engage in income-generating crimes, but tend to not actually get money for it. (laughs) The probability of actually translating that into earnings is higher for people who have committed group crime. And Tilly and Tilly in 2014 actually used the NIBRS data. And so they looked at incidents that involve multiple offenders and found that among for property offenders, and they found that among property offenders, those who worked in groups, the total property value was greater than those who offended alone. But the value per offender, when you sort of divide it up per offender, it's less. So I think co-offending offers opportunities that might not be available, right? Especially for maybe people who are starting out or whatnot. But the individual take tends to be less. And so there's trade-offs. But I think there's not a lot of literature on it. And really, we need to actually do more research in terms of thinking about the nuances, right? Because we know group crimes, there's so many nuances and the dynamics and the roles and how many offenders there are, sort of roles that each person takes. And also it's very different across crime types. So I think those are all important considerations, but that's sort of what we know so far. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So it sounds like if you're alone, 
like the payoff is a little higher, but the success rate is a little lower. But if you're with a group, the success rate or actually managing to get it done is a little higher, but the payoff that you end up taking home is a little lower. Does that sound about right? I think that in terms of actual like successful in completion of the crime, it's still up for debate. There's not, or like risks of arrest with groups and solo, there seems to still be sort of more research needed. But the ones that did earn something, it looks like group uh, group totality has more earnings. But if you once you divide it up, it tends to be lesser per individual. Are there other drawbacks to group offending other than, you know, not necessarily making as much money than as you would alone? I think there's definitely one thing is the risk involved, right? And so the research that looks at sort of, is it riskier to be involved in crime with others versus alone? I think there's, there's a couple of new pieces that have come out, but it's still up for debate and it's so nuanced, right? In terms of what types of crime, what you define as sort of a group and your co-offender. So definitely the idea of risk of arrest is, is, is something to be taken into consideration. But also, I mean, we know that when you're in the company of others, there's always also really important psychic awards, right? Like intrinsic awards and social rewards that, are, that maybe sometimes are more salient than even illegal earnings or risk, especially for adolescents. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I, I guess we can start moving on towards the paper that we're going to talk about today on the conceptualization of criminal capital. It's in the Journal of Research and Crime and Delinquency. just came out this year. And it's... Woo. <laughs> what? I just said yay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and this is really more of a, like the title says, conceptualization paper, a measurement paper of criminal capital. And where Holly provides a conceptualization of criminal capital. She presents an analysis of dimensionality and concurrent validity of criminal capital using longitudinal data from a study in Delaware. So, and one of the things that is mentioned in the paper is that prior research has assumed that skills and knowledge were acquired through measures of peer exposure in the institution, and they have not measured the mechanisms of why individuals reoffend or earn more illegal income upon release from the institution. And so that's sort of a quick introduction to Holly's paper. And Jen, you want to get the questions rolling? Yeah. So first off, Holly, I found your paper to be incredibly interesting. I really love measurement papers for some weird reason. I never thought that I would have said that. But yeah, so I really enjoyed it. So before we're going to ask you to kind of summarize the key findings, but before we do that, just for people who aren't necessarily as familiar with these topics, could you kind of define what criminal capital is and then what the difference between human criminal capital is and social criminal capital? Right, that's a that, I think actually that's the whole that would that in itself yeah. is the point of the paper is to actually have sort of a, a working definition of what is criminal capital. 
So it was interesting and it was hard to sort of think about. But for me anyway, criminal capital is like the acquisition and the number of like resources that individuals have, both you know, social or sort of skills and knowledge that people can use and mobilize to engage in offending behavior. And so just a quick question for you two. So what, if you, before reading this paper, sort of what did you think of, like, because have you heard of the term or the concept of criminal capital and sort of what, you, what did you think criminal capital was? I think this is a first for us. We've never been asked a question on here. No, we haven't. It's cool. <laughs> so I think, and Jose, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we actually read a paper on criminal capital in our theory class. I might be wrong about that, but I feel like I've read about it before, but it definitely didn't point to like an exclusive definition, which again, like you mentioned, I think is the whole purpose in this paper that you wrote. And so I think I had more thought along the lines of like solely social criminal capital, where like the network and those kinds of interactions that you have and developing kind of this network of other people who are engaged in criminal activities rather than, yeah, other types of definitions. Yeah, I feel like I've heard the term here and there, but what I was more familiar with was uh, this idea of illegal earnings. And so, yeah, before I read your paper, all I really knew about criminal capital was illegal earnings. So, like, people like your drug dealers, right? And I think the, a lot of what I know came from people looking at gangs and how, and how they generate income, but I've never seen it laid out quite like you did in this paper. Yeah, so I think the idea of criminal capital is intuitive, right? Sort of the idea of there's some sort of stock of knowledge or skills that a person has. And it might be crime specific. And so those are the things that I think I use to define criminal capital over the years and in the paper. It's sort of this, this, this acquisition and accumulation of, like you said, Jen, like both social components of it and then the human component, human criminal capital in the sense of skills and knowledge and experience in it. And so I draw from the legal literature, right? So social capital is such a huge concept, right? In sociology, economics, across all these things. And so social criminal capital are just like the connections and resources that individuals have that can be harnessed into like a particular activity to, to be more successful at it. And whereas human capital, I think, has stronger roots, I think, in, in economics and education in terms of thinking about skill acquisition, right? And schooling is definitely like one of the key parts in the legitimate world as part of human capital accumulation. So the skills and knowledge, I think, would be the criminal human capital part of it. So there's social criminal capital and human criminal capital. And so I think in the larger literature, the two have been treated sort of somewhat separately. People looked at us, social capital in terms of a number of outcomes and human capital in terms of a number of outcomes. 
So when we sort of import them into the criminal world, do they also, like, the idea is, are, are they also separate? Or, or are they sort of necessitous? Does the illegality of it necessitate sort of the, the joining of the two? So that was sort of the, the idea of the two concepts into criminal. And with that, Holly, can you hit us with the highlights of your paper, the key findings? Sure, yeah. So I have to qualify those. I conducted, so it was a conceptualization piece, and I did some analyses sort of trying to figure it out. But the analyses is very specific to the sample, right? It was a smaller sample, and it, it was about acquisition within prisons. You can think of a multitude of different ways people can gain connections and skills and, and experience with offending that, are, that is not in prison. But what I found in the study, sort of the, the hot takes, <laughs> um, <laughs> are that basically the human criminal capital, social criminal capital, represents sort of one dimension. So they, 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 in the study, among the study participants, they weren't separate. They weren't tapping into sort of two different constructs. So it seemed like they were intertwined with one another. That's number one. And number two is that those who reported gaining greater criminal capital, both in the forms of human and social criminal capital within um, the prison, had a higher probability of the willingness to offend and greater sort of perceived rewards to offending. And, and I think it was a, a couple of other outcomes that I looked at. So it was the earnings expectations were higher for illegal earnings when they were out from prison. So it, what it shows is there those who did report gaining greater criminal capital, it seemed to have this construct validity that there is something about this idea that is related to post-police outcomes. Well, those are, the, I guess, the two main ideas that somebody might take away from the paper. Okay. The hot takes. <laughs> the two hot takes. All right. So kind of a first question has like three separate questions. So I'll kind of lead into the first one and then let you answer the first before just hitting you with like three questions rapid fire. But one of the seeming, it seemed like one of the main reasons for this paper was the discussion of how there's been such little emphasis on the conceptualization and measurement of like within criminology generally, but also within criminal capital literature specifically. And so kind of first off, why do you think that there is this lack of attention to conceptualization and measurement when it seems so important? Yeah, that is a very good question. I think, I mean, there has been a good number of research done, especially I think in the, like low self-control, for example, a lot of work has been done on like the measurement of low self-control. But the trend, and I think, you know, I think has been, at least in the last decade, I has been really on sort of this idea of causality and selection. And so a lot of work has been focused on identifying causal effects of, of different things. And I think that that is where the attention has been mostly. And so 
this lack of attention in terms of, I'm not sure why that's the reason, but part of it, I think, might be that we're working with such a hard-to-reach population, right? And so when we want to really think about measurement, we want to ask maybe 20 different questions to cap tap into one construct, right? And we know that the more we can sort of triangulate into sort of a latent construct and with the more measures, then the better we can at sort of finding sort of a best way to look at it. So I think it's it, a lot of it is just the hard to reach population and being able to really spend some time in terms of fleshing out sort of all these questions and, and different ways to measure different things. I think over time, there's been some good examples. Like I said, self-control, and there's been sort of things about like time use and specialization, like things about thinking about like how to measure specialization. But I'd love to see more of it, though. I think it is very important because if we are going towards a field that really emphasizes causality, which is really important, we need to make sure what we're putting in the front end <laughs> makes sense, that we're actually measuring what we me want to measure to even start thinking about sort of causal estimates. Well, you kind of answered my follow-up questions just there. Um, oh my Because, <laughs> yeah, they were just kind of like, why is this lack of attention troubling for criminology as a field? And then more specifically drilling into criminal capital research. And if the difference is, like, if there's a difference between why it's troubling or if it's the same reason. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I think we definitely should invest more time in it. And yeah in some ways that it's, it's, I don't think we can really say a lot about things if we're not really measuring them correctly. And right. obviously we know that human behavior is so varied. So we have to sort of think about measurement across contexts and really, really work on sort of thinking about the best way to think of valid and reliable measures. Mm -hmm. But in terms of criminal capital, Criminal capital is, in my opinion, has been used like commonly, in so relatively decently common. Mm -hmm. It's not sort of one of the main research lines in criminology, but it's sort of a concept that is intuitive and people like to use, sort of, or float around sometimes. Or, like you know, it's it's building criminal capital, or they have criminal capital but really without sort of stopping and thinking about what it actually is and thinking about how we might measure it. So I think as a field in general, we definitely should think more about conceptualization and measurement. But in criminal capital, I think hopefully that research will, will first needs to be studied. I think there's a, a value in studying this type of research, but also then in terms of following in that line of, additional measurement ideas and work. Yeah. Okay, so getting a little academic with this question. So as this is a conceptualization and measurement paper, you have a section on reflective and formative measurement. Can you give us a quick rundown on what these measurement models are and why it's important to give critical thought to which one is appropriate? Yeah, I think 
You know, as I was writing this paper, I learned a lot about measurement models. And it's it's definitely an entire sort of whole realm of models, I think. And I never thought about sort of what reflective or formative measures, I didn't know what they were until I started looking more into it. And so I think that it's the idea that from your latent construct, right, we have indicators. And so indicators either sort of stem from the latent construct or the indicators form the latent construct. And I think that it's, it's just the importance of it is, is looking at how the two sort of, those two relate. And so I think with reflective, we can think of a latent construct that the, the different indicators stem from and then hence potentially are, you know, sort of all related to this construct. So like self-control, for example, is, is a common one, right? So that like the indicators, for example, of like impulsivity or sort of come from this latent construct of self-control, whereas, for example, neighborhood disadvantage, like SES or poverty or mobility are sort of these measures or indicators that together they will form an index of disadvantage. So I think those are the two sort of key ideas that in terms of measurement, we should really think about. And, you know, sometimes there's no right answer. Like sometimes it could be sort of, well, you know, theoretically, we think that the indicators come from the latent construct or theoretically, we think that the construct comes from the indicators form the construct itself. So I think it's a matter of sort of disentangling it both theoretically, and then there are some sort of sensitivity analyses that you can do to, to, to see if, if that's the case or not. But I think it's not solely driven on sort of the data too. So it's also the, don't focus on that very much in criminology at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, when I was reading it, I kept thinking back to a class that I took in psychology and that's where I had heard these terms before versus in criminology. So, yeah. All right. So we have one more question about your paper, Holly. And this is about one of your findings that we thought was interesting. So it looked like most, if not all, of the participants either agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, I gained knowledge and information about crime during my time in prison, but very few of them were able to translate it in the practical sense. So they felt like they couldn't make more money off of that. Do you have any ideas why that was? Yeah, that's a good question. So the first one, I mean, the gaining knowledge and information is pretty broad. I mean, the question itself was sort of broad enough that I think it's easy for most people to say, to agree to that. So I think the question itself was not, didn't discriminate as much as some of the other questions. And so the question of being able to make more money, I think definitely required, would require sort of more mobilization and potential specific knowledge or skills associated with offending. So I think that might be part of it. But I think the first one was definitely general enough for people to agree with, which I think in some ways is intuitive. And it, I think, works 
well with the findings from the Rowan study, right? In terms of thinking about co-offenders, for example, enabling or having a better opportunity to translate crime into money through connections. Yeah, so I think those are the main reasons why we found that. I mean, why did you find it interesting? I think it is mainly, like, you know, you, like, because it just made it, made me think of, you know, they, like, what's that thing that they say, that, that prison is, like, the school of crime. Crime school. Yeah. And, you know, the people that come out of there just come out better at criminals. But, yeah, it just, it, it just seems a, seemed a little interesting that, they're like, yeah, we learned more about crime, or we have more knowledge about crime, but it's not translating, right? Because I, I think a lot of people, especially those that aren't really into crime, or you know, just like your average person, kind of just thinks like, yeah, you go into prison, you learn, you pick up a new, a couple of new tricks, you come out, and you put those tricks to use. Right. Yeah. So I mean, like gaining the the knowledge and information seems to be somewhat ubiquitous, right, in, in sort of that environment, which is I probably why a lot of individuals agreed to it. But actually using that information and skills and having sort of the ability or connection to make it better to have more, I guess, criminal capital and to harness it is harder than just sort of being, being in prison. And that's it. So it's not sort of an automatic Right. It would be interesting to look at that within a prison setting as to whether people can gain these extra skills and then put them to use in prison versus also upon release. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like a paper we we, we did, I think, a few years ago looked at sort of earnings pre-prison and then prison. And, you know, I think there were individuals we found that individuals who, you know, were there for a certain amount of time and who had reported greater friends in prison earned more post-release. So in some ways it did function as a school of crime for some. Yeah, but just that actually putting the skills to use, like you said, is difficult as it is, let alone, you know, learning new skills and then putting those to use as well. Exactly. I think so. That's why... Part of it is, you know, if we simply measure criminal capital by the number of deviant friends, we don't actually get at sort of the learning and the doing. Mm-hmm. All right. So should we move into our myth busting or? Yeah. So we have two. So our first one is that, you know, a lot of times people will use the expression that crime never pays. And so that's kind of like alluding to this likelihood of being caught, you know, rather than getting the rewards. And so is it true that crime never pays? (laughs) I guess I think, like you mentioned, like it depends. It's sort of a tricky uh, question that depends on what you mean by pay, right? Like, so obviously, you know, given all the costs and, and consequences associated with crime, I mean, obviously... It's definitely not an ideal activity or choice. But if we look at data from illegal earnings, then I think there's a few things that we can sort of make note of. And so, I mean, I hear that 
that's something that I think people say, right? Like, so if drug dealers really do make like money, why are they still living with their moms? <laughs> it's like that, right? And the, oh, yeah. I heard that crime actually doesn't really pay. It's actually really like, but you know, what we know is there's a lot of variability in earnings, right? Just, just like right. legitimately, there's so much variation. So we can't really sum it up by saying crime doesn't pay. And so there's, there's so much variation across individuals, but also within individuals, right? Across time and location and, and crime types. And so I would say that it's really hard to sort of make any conclusions because crime is so different in the sense that it's such a function of frequency or like earnings. Mm-hmm. It, frequency so very few people who engage in crime do it eight hours a day but it's like very so some do like for instance drug dealing some might do a few deals a week right some might do do it on a daily basis or burglaries and some might do one or two and then some might just do it every night or something like that so there's a lot of variation so it's hard to sort of compare that to legal wages but one of my favorite papers was a paper in 1992 by Rob McQueen and Peter Reuter. And I think the paper is entitled, one of my favorite titles, because I'm really bad at titles. But the title is, is the wage, is $30 the wage of sin? So they looked at parolees, drug dealers in Washington, D.C., and they calculated sort of what a typical wage would be like an hourly wage for a dealer. Mm-hmm. And back then they sort of surmised that it was about $30. No. Mm-hmm. Right, which is sounds pretty good. Yeah. It sounds like, but of course, you know, it really varies in sort of when we think about per week, per month. Right. So sort of in like, if we think about per deal, it seems like a lot, but it's not a consistent activity. There's a lot of volatility to it. So I think that that would be my answer. I think that if we, you know, take into consideration that, that it's so variable in terms of how often people do it and sort of it has, it comes with a lot of other things, right? It comes of when we think about people who engage in offending generally or people who have less human capital, like education or experience, there are draws to illicit activity. It's often immediate. The, the pay is immediate. It's cash. Your schedule's flexible to some extent. You don't have to do, you don't have to stand somewhere eight hours a day. It's not taxed or if you do owe money, it, the wages are not garnished at all. So those are all the things I think we can think about if we really want to think about if, if crime pays. But I think generally we can say that it depends. <laughs> <laughs> That. In true academic fashion. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> academic or politician. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, no, it's interesting. It, it does remind me, because like, again, like I mentioned, whenever I read anything about criminal capital, it's really more about earnings and mainly dealing with with gangs and gang members. And so it just reminds me of the Megan Augustine, Jean McGloin, and David Pyru's paper, where I can't remember the, the exact nuanced details but they conclude something along the lines of there's an uptick in earnings with gang membership like at onset but 
over the course of the experience of gang membership, there's no real benefit to overall earnings. And so the, they said something along, something along the lines of gang membership doesn't pay, quote unquote. But yeah, right. So and then but I, I would counter pay compared to what? Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess that's sort of the, the thing. Or like the levels of gang membership. Like, are you talking about the top dogs who are probably making the most money versus the daily people who are out doing the drug dealing that probably aren't making that much? Yeah, I guess. And so it's like that sort of speaks to the Levitt and Venkatesh stuff, right? Where it's like the the soldiers themselves don't make very much, but Mm -hmm. in, in hopes of gaining more prestige or a bigger role than, than maybe it's worth it. But there's just, yeah, there's a lot of nuance. So, yeah. yeah. And so actually, I think that segues nicely into this next question. And this one was mainly from stuff that I've heard. So I've done work with gang intervention programs and something that seems to come up fairly frequently with some of like the case managers that are working with gang involved people is yeah i don't know how easy it's gonna be to get him to stop doing dirt and selling drugs because he's making a lot more money doing that than he would at like burger king or at autos or whatever and so our question is do you know how true it is that people that make money illegally are reluctant to obtain legal employment I think what you you say, I mean, I've heard as well, like either at the dinner table or, you know, at at like sort of any talk of when I, you know, tell them what I I study. Um, But I think the question generally or the statement is a little bit of a misnomer in the sense that, like, you know, the people who are engaging in crime are reluctant to gain legal employment because what we know is that the patterns of employment are so complex. So, for example, at the beginning of the podcast, the idea of sort of crime as work is that, you know, crime and legal work aren't mutually exclusive choices, right? And so it is a continuum of income generating activities. And so we know, by and large, most people don't only engage in crime. And so a lot of people are working legally and selling drugs or and doing burglaries or breaking into cars contemporaneously, sort of at the same time. So they're doubling up or whatever you call it, overlapping either sort of at the same time or bouncing back and forth intermittently or doing it sequentially, depending on the availability of the opportunities, both legal and illegal opportunities, right? So if somebody's working and then their friend, if they're still staying in contact with sort of criminal friends saying, hey, I have this opportunity, <laughs> job, do you want to do it? I mean, sure, I'll do, do it and then I'll go back to work tomorrow. So I think the idea of full-time criminals is not as common as sort of people make, out, make it out to be. So then the question of, you know, criminals and non-criminals or people who work and, and do crime isn't so clear cut. So yeah, you know that different data sets, even from different sort of populations, both inmate and 
sort of the general population samples. People are engaging in a bunch of stuff all the time. So I think that the key is then to understanding it is to really think about, well, if people make money in a bunch of different ways, then maybe one thing to think about, and I think hasn't been really looked at, is, well, how do people sort of earmark those earnings? So if I work legally, and you know, some of my work that I've, I've talked with people who have engaged in a bunch of different things, they say, okay, my legal job is this paycheck, right, that comes in every two weeks, and I'm going to pay the rent with that. And so whatever I make from drug selling or, or car theft or whatnot, then I, that's my party money, right? So and those, that's the fast-burning money. So I'm going to party with that money, but then I'm going to put my legal earnings sort of to the bills. So people are earmarking and potentially if they're engaged in a bunch of different activities that they're sort of putting different values on, then we should really start understanding how that works because then maybe sort of these policies that are aimed to raise the minimum wage or whatnot, that might be earmarked differently. And so there might not be an impact on the other fund money. So I think that, I think to say that, you know, People who, who engage in crime don't really want to engage in legal employment isn't true. It's just sort of how they navigate that. That's, that's really interesting. I clearly, like, this is not necessarily stuff that I know very well. And so I had never heard, you know, that people kind of say, well, I'm putting the money that I make legally toward one thing and then I'm doing these other activities so I can pay for alcohol or whatever to party and have fun with and that yeah your point about raising the minimum wage and how really that might not be the necessary like strategy to get at what the purpose or one of the purposes of it could be yeah I think that I mean that comes like right from like behavioral economics right and and, and classical economics right and so the classical model would say, yeah, money is money, right? From a rational person, a dollar is a dollar. And income is fungible across all sources. So a rational person would amalgamate all those sources. So if I increase one, but in behavioral economics, there's this idea of mental accounting. And so these, these different pockets of money are sort of spent differently. So like you get money for your birthday or a surprise tax refund. Yeah probably going to spend it a little quicker than sort of what your stipend. <laughs> you know, I never thought about it that way, but now that I hear you explain it, it just makes so much sense. And like personally, it makes sense. Like based yeah. off of extra money that I've randomly gotten from wherever, you know, that oh, yeah. I just, it's like the birthday yeah. money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely spent differently than other kinds of money. Yeah. But yeah, from a rational perspective, it shouldn't be right. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, anything else? It, questions from you, Holly, for us or Jose, questions for Holly? No? All right. Well, then, thank you so much, Holly, for coming onto the podcast. It's been well, thank really Thank you fun. for having me. <laughs> yeah, we have learned a lot. Is there anything that you'd like to plug or anything that you have, you know, coming out, whether it's publication or something like that? No, no, nothing to plug. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then where can people find you, whether that's email or I know you said you don't really do social media. So 
Well, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not social media savvy. So, but you know, you can definitely find me at my email or the Penn State <laughs> website. <laughs> my yeah. email is located there. So yeah, let me know if anybody has any questions or want to talk more about this. I'd love to. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Holly.